Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. When Secretary of State John Kerry signed the Paris Climate Agreement recently, he held his two-year-old granddaughter on his lap. She probably knows quite a bit about climate change already, and today on the show we'll explore what other kids are learning and doing about climate disruption. In the second half of the hour, we'll hear what three high school and college students in the Bay Area are already doing to act upon what they learned in the classroom. Their knowledge and their action will inspire you and maybe make you think about what you were doing at their age. In our first half hour, we'll learn what teachers, pediatricians, and museums are doing to frame climate as a concern for California's children today. We're not talking about 2100 here, people. We're pleased to welcome now two climate education experts. Minda Berbeco is Programs and Policy Director at the National Center for Science Education, a nonprofit based in Oakland. And Alex Whistler is former CEO of the Chabot Space and Science Center, where he led development of the Bill Nye Climate Lab. He's now a principal at Estelling Labs, which advises educational organizations and museums. Please welcome them to Climate One. Minda, Minda Berbeco, let's talk with you and go to San Diego, where the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, approached you because they were trying to get more education in schools about climate. So tell us when they they approached you. Sure. Um, They were interested in bringing more climate change into their local schools. They saw it as an issue not just for politicians, but one for their classrooms and for students. And they wanted the PTA to step up to do that. So if you have never been to a PTA convention before, it's quite an amazing experience. So it's like a political convention, but instead of people jostling about um, uh, the politician they're going to vote for, instead they're all advocating for their children's education. So it's thousands of people shouting and dancing and, and so on. And so they wanted to bring a resolution to the PTA to talk about climate change. And it was an incredible experience. I've never been around more passionate people. So they brought it to the convention, and there were many um, interesting conversations that happened with different PTAs around the state. Should this be considered a children's issue? Should this be something that schools should be addressing? And some people didn't agree. Some people felt like, no, this is something that parents should be talking about, or this is really more political. But in fact, in the end, it was the, the PTA of California, the majority of the folks agreed that climate change is a children's issue, and the PTA should be doing more to help schools bring climate change into their classrooms. And now they're trying to take it to the national PTA, which has, how's that going? There's nothing more political than a PTA. <laughs> That's true. But you have to keep in mind that everyone there is really advocating for their children. So everyone there really has their kids' best interests at heart. And I think that that's, that was my biggest takeaway from that. And, um, you know, it might be a bit of a fight and it might be a big challenge, but um, they were such strong supporters. And I feel like the, the parents and teachers of California are such strong supporters of climate change education that they can really bring it there. 
Alex Whistler, you headed a Chabot Space and Science Center when the Bill Nye Climate Lab was brought there. So tell us about the development and introduction of that lab. Bill Nye is a, is a rock star in science, but tell us about that development. Absolutely, but first I want to just reference something uh, that Minda mentioned because as a result of the work that you did and that uh, the uh, San Diego PTA did, um, Cool the Earth, which uh, is a great nonprofit uh, environmental education program based here in the Bay Area, is now working in San Diego. And so they reached out to us, and so there's like this great little ecosystem going here. Bill Nye and the Climate Lab. Well, um, we recognize the fact that um, it was a real challenge. This is now seven or eight years ago. Uh, to how do we communicate climate change education to kids or the issues around climate change to kids. And so we sought to do that in a way that presented a positive message. Um, so we did three things. One, we wanted to talk about what is the science that we know? What do we know? How do we know that carbon is increasing and is causing a rise in temperatures? Then what do we do about it? And so there we activated a, a series of programs for the kids to come in and not only think about what the science is, but also what they could personally do or maybe encourage their parents to do. And I think a lot of um, the environmental uh, and climate change education programs sort of seek to do similar things. Uh, Cool the Earth is another one, Alliance for Climate Education, a third, there's many. And I think, you know, at the heart of it all, it's around how do we give our kids a positive uh, vision of the future? Because if we just talk about, you know, apocalypse and hopelessness and pointlessness, uh, it's easy to give up. But I think there's a lot to be hopeful about and positive about. I know that's the energy that Bill brings to it. Um, And as you probably saw in the press, he continues to fight uh, this fight, uh, even with some political figures in our uh, national leadership. And um, so bottom line, it's communicating a message about and empowering the kids. I think that's the other part, so that they can feel empowered to do something. They don't feel powerless and that also that they, they become then uh, advocates within their own family, within their own school. We were having conversations earlier about some great work, some of the high school kids you're going to hear from, the work they're doing in their schools. Um, so I'm actually very optimistic that uh, our youth are in the vanguard of this movement. And one key to making it upbeat is making it fun. Cool the Earth does things like have student plays. Actually, the youngest person ever interviewed at Climate One was a sixth grader who I think was the villain in a school play. Perfect. He was Mr. Carbon, right? Carbon. <laughs> and he scared away the polar bear, and the polar bear went running away. So how do, what does Cool the Earth, they make games? How do they make it fun for kids to learn about climate? So uh, the Cool the Earth program, I think, is, is genius. Um, they go into the schools and present a, a play in an uh, in a, in a, in a all-school assembly. And the characters in the play are uh, teachers and parents uh, in the school acting out these various roles. So there's evil Mr. Carbon, and there's the wonderful Coda that we're trying to save Coda's life. And uh, But then the message that the kids take away from that program is now you can go home, and we want you to take some actions, and we want to get your parents to take some actions. And then when they do those actions, this is typically over a four-week period, they come back to school and they get little rewards, a sticker or a pencil. And if you haven't been to one of these programs or seen these kids engaged in this, I highly recommend it because it's so powerful. It's not high-tech, but it's very high-touch, and the kids get emotionally engaged, and the parents take the actions. And as a result, Cool the Earth has seen now over nearly 200,000 students, 500 schools, and we're tracking the carbon, and we believe we've reduced carbon by a quarter of a billion tons. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Uh, Minda Berbeco, climate has become political, controversial. So what's it like for a teacher in a classroom to think, well, mm, I'm not sure if I know this science is complicated. It's pretty new since I went to school, maybe. And the parents might get upset. I'm not sure what my principal thinks. So tell us about teachers bringing climate into the classroom and some of the pressures they face. Well, it's tricky. Um, In some communities where teachers have a lot of support, it's not an issue at all. And in fact, what we'll find, like with San Diego, they were really strongly advocating for more opportunities to bring climate change in the classroom. Um, But unfortunately, in other communities, there is a lot of resistance to it. Um, Folks think that it's political, and, and it's not just 
parents coming in or not just students coming in and challenging the science, but sometimes you might get a school board member. So I was working with one teacher um, in an eastern state, and I won't identify where, <laughs> but um, he had a challenge where the school board member demanded every single one of the pieces of material that he had on climate change that he was distributing to students. And then it had an outside um, quote-unquote expert come in and just go through the materials with a red pen and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. He sent those materials to me. They were extraordinarily well-cited. He um, cited the very radical groups like NASA and NOAA <laughs> um, in all of his work. And so his, all his T's were crossed, all his I's were dotted, um, and yet he still had this challenge. The nice thing, though, is that a lot of times when these challenges come up, teachers feel like, oh my gosh, I'm alone, and, and you're really not, um, because there is a very strong community um, that supports um, climate change education, and sometimes it's just a matter of reaching out to other teachers, reaching out to the Science Teacher Association in your state, or even reaching out to parents in your community just to make sure that you have that support so when someone does come down on you, um, you can say, look, go talk to all them, and they can support you. And a corollary issue is the battle over textbooks, right? You sure. deal with evolution as well as other sci- you know, climate change. So tell us about the textbooks and, and if, is evolution kind of making its way back in and is climate being squeezed out? Um, so that's a great question. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of similarities between the pushback between uh, uh, evolution and climate change. Um, they're a little bit different. And one of the big challenges that climate change suffers from, and this is California specific, a study came out this past year that really evaluated how our how are textbooks addressing climate change? And what they found is there's a lot of hedging in the language. We might think this. Scientists believe this. Whereas we don't talk about gravity in the same way. We don't talk about things, other areas of science in that way. And so there's this very kind of subtle, underhanded approach to climate change. And in defense of the authors, they want their books to be accepted. And they know that people are going to rise up and, and challenge the way climate change is approached unless... They, um, they hedge their language. But as a result, students come away thinking, well, they, they might think that climate change is happening. It could be happening. Whereas we have such a strong body of evidence about it, it shouldn't be approached in that way. Uh, Alex Whistler, this gets to the heart of science, where things, are the- things that are well-established are still called theories, oh, you're... and things that uh, are not fully known, you know, there's always a little bit of doubt in science, and scientists like to test things and test their doubt, and that seems like America's having a hard time understanding that. Well, there, I'm, I'm struggling right now because there was a great piece recently that I, that I uh, blogged out on the, the misunderstanding of what a theory is. So in science, a theory is a well-established set of of principles uh, that have been scientifically tested over a long period of time and validated. So that's the theory of gravity. I mean, you know, that's the theory of evolution. But but people in the public, they think, well, I have a theory that if I... Um, do X, Y, and Z, something will happen. Well, no, that's not a theory. That's a, <laughs> that's a hypothesis, okay? And so, but we, we do get tied up in this notion of the word theory. And uh, so that's just one thing for everyone to carry away. When you hear someone saying, well, it's just a theory, we well, have yeah, to say, well, theories are, in science terms, a theory is a very powerful construct. And uh, so it's, it's not just a theory. It's, uh, it's validated by, in some cases, hundreds of years of scientific experimentation. So, um, yeah, when you, were, when you were talking about that, that's exactly where I was going to go, so you fed me that question. <laughs> uh, tell us about what you're doing down at Moffett Field. There's a cool new science center that's going to happen down there, mm. uh, Alex Whistler, uh, right near Google and Moffett Field. Right. So um, uh, Google has um, a plan and a, an obligation to build a brand-new 90,000-square-foot STEM-slash-STEAM um, uh, public educational facility uh, right there at Moffett Field, right next to NASA Ames. And uh, right now we're working with them to try to envision what that might be. Um, I think uh, it's, it's going to be in a couple of years, but it's, it's very exciting. I think we're, looking, we're talking to a lot of uh, program partners, um, folks like the Girl Scouts of Northern California, Tech Bridge. There's a lot of great work, and, and all of those not only do work in STEM education, but they also do a lot of work in climate. So I think more and more STEM and climate is all blending into one because um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we want young people to get into the sciences and engineering is to solve and tackle the challenges that climate and other uh, issues are uh, bringing before us. 
We're talking about climate education and climate one. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Alex Swissler, former head of Chabot Space and Science Center, and Minda Berbeco from the National Center for Science Education. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle, at Climate One. I'd like to go to our lightning round and ask uh, Minda and Alex a brief yes or no or single answer uh, question. Uh, starting with Minda Berbeco, this is uh, yes or no. Liberal people who object to GMO foods usually base their arguments on ideology more than science. Yes or no? Oh, I'm, I can't answer that. <laughs> it Alex? depends. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Alex Whistler, Bill Nye is the coolest nerd ever. Yes. That was an easy one. Minda, Ber- Minda Berbeco, which state outlawed sea level rise in 2012? I believe it was North Carolina. North Carolina is the one. <laughs> um, uh, Minda Berbeco, the governor of which state banned mention of sea level rise by state employees? I believe that was Florida. Correct. Uh, oh, that ends the lightning round. How do they do? <laughs> well, they, they did pretty well. You didn't ask me those hard yeah. ones. <laughs> Why does he get the easy one? Yeah, Bill Nye's cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're talking about climate education at Climate One. Alex Whistler, what can be done, I want to ask both of you, to get more girls, young women involved in STEAM and, and STEM careers? There's a, there's a gap there, and we need those, those skills to address the climate challenge. There's a number of approaches that are underway, and, and if it was a simple if it was a simple problem, I think we would have already solved it. Um, I mentioned just briefly earlier uh, programs like the Girl Scouts of Northern California, Tech Bridge, Girls Who Code. There's a number of informal programs that are underway. And there's also a number of formal programs, even in the university level. But I just stumbled across a study that I just found so fascinating where I believe it was Harvey Mudd College um, made a big effort to increase uh, the number of women uh, taking uh, computer science. And they actually got it up to, you know, half the women, half the people in, in their program were women. And then they graduated, and most of them didn't take jobs in computer science because there's such, there's cultural barriers. These are, these are deeply ingrained issues. So I think the, the short answer is we have to do everything. Uh, most of these programs are necessary. None of them seem to be sufficient, and we just need to keep plugging away. I think it's one of these things that's going to take time. It's a cultural change. Minda Berbeco, I have a 12-year-old daughter. I encouraged her to take a coding camp this cool. summer. Nah, not interested. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I don't know whether that's... We need artists, too. ...comes from Disney <laughs> Channel. There's no female coders on Disney Channel. I don't know. So what's being done to get more women into STEAM? Oh, I, there's a lot being done. And, and I, I think the challenge that you're pointing to is that sometimes maybe... She's just not interested right now. But that doesn't mean she won't be either. And I I can give you an anecdote from myself that I was not interested in science technology at all. And I ended up at the totally wrong school for me. I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is a a computer science school. Um, And I was a psychology major. And as part of it, though, graduating as a psychology major, I had to take all these computer programming classes. And if I had known that when I applied, I certainly would not have done it. Um, But there was a little twisting of my arm. And I use that stuff all the time now. And it actually forced me into science and technology. And when I wanted to go get my degree, my advanced degree in biology later on, I had all this background in science that I was like, at the time, not going to need it. So sometimes in those cases, you need to figure out a way to encourage folks, even if they're like, that's not for me. You can encourage women in other ways. What are some things you've learned from kids, either the kids that uh, you encounter uh, in, through your work for the National Center for Science Education? What, what are some things you've learned from kids about climate? Oh, everything. First of all, I think that um, one of the greatest things I've learned from uh, the PTA, from being on the board of the California Science Teacher Association, and also from organizations like ACE and Cool the Earth, is how powerful kids are. Um, they have an unending amount of energy, an unending amount of enthusiasm, and if you can get them excited about stuff, um, they are just an extremely powerful voice um, to bring to the table. And not only that, but if you want change to happen, having a child come home and say, why are we driving to school every day why, when it's only three blocks away? Can we walk? I mean, those are the things that get parents thinking and get adults changing, too. Alex Whistler, the Bill Nye Science Lab over at Chabot, thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids have gone through there. Are you able to track the impact of the change of that, or is it, is it more nuanced and, and iterative? I mean, I think, you know, we can certainly measure the number of kids, the number of, uh, you know, uh, 
the learning that they do when they're there, I think it's, it is more challenging to track the long-term impact. You know, what happens when they go home? What happens in five years? Do they get into STEM programs, et cetera? I think it's, one of the, again, one of the fallacies of these... Well, not a fallacy. I think sometimes there's an expectation that any individual program is going to change, or change an individual's life or save the world. It's, it's not that. It, but it is all of it combined. And I think it's more about trends. And I think when you see the fact that the PTA, you know, adopts this. I mean, 15 years ago, absolutely not, you know. When you see the fact that we've gone from, you know, debating these issues to COP21 now being ratified, you know, I mean, these huge, huge changes. Um, and, but I think we're all impatient. We know that the challenge is greater than what is being done to date. Um, but I think we should also be optimistic, and particularly with our kids, because they are absolutely, as you say, in the vanguard. They're, they're, they're one by one changing the world, and uh, their expectations and their actions are going to be a lot different than what I experienced growing up, and I think, I'm, I think it's going to be good, actually. Great. Uh, Minda Berbeco, one big change, the next generation, science standards, very political in this country. Uh, West Virginia just voted them down. Where do those stand, and what are they, what are they going to do? Um, yeah, NGSS is really interesting. So I should say that it only makes the news when it's challenged, um, and it never makes the news when people just accept it um, and adopt the standards. Um, they're really great standards. Um, we have them. We adopted them here in California, so that's that's fantastic. The nice thing about them is that they really integrate in um, solutions and problem solving, engineering design into other aspects of um, that we're more familiar with, like biology, chemistry, those kinds of things. Um, but because they include things like the word evolution or the word climate change. They are um, very politically um, hot-button topic in certain areas, and so certainly that is a challenge. What we've found that's worked really well is when communities say, no, 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 these are good science standards. Climate change is one little piece of it, and first of all, climate change is science. It should be included, but you can't throw it this whole giant document away and all the things that would come from it just because we don't, we don't politically agree with this one little piece of it. Let's talk about climate solutions. Uh, Minda Berbeco, a lot of times the science is thought about as the problem. There's too much energy uh, being emitted because of heat. We've basically been burning stuff for 150 years, and that's disrupted the energy balance on the climate. Uh, what kind of education is happening around solutions? Oh, yeah, that's actually, that's a great question. And I think this goes into some of the things that Alex was talking about. I think that maybe traditionally people approached climate change as it's all of these problems, it's very negative, you know, polar bears, you know, are dying, those kinds of things. And the new, the new way that teachers are approaching it, with it, which I think is brilliant, is, you know, here's all the science, here are the problems, but what are we going to do about it? And really putting it in children's hands that you actually can make a difference. And whether that's through technology, through coding, whatever avenue you're going to take, there, there's a lot of opportunity there. Alex Whistler, solution. You know, science tends to focus on problems, right, and what's not known, but a lot of science is needed for battery breakthroughs, big innovations, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we did uh, at Chabot with Bill Nye is we had a sort of an uh, ideation station where kids could sit down and draw out their own solutions, their own, you know, crazy ideas. And then we took those and some of the, um, some of the best ones, we actually turned over to local artists, and then they, re- they actually built these little things that these kids imagined. Cool. So it, it was taking it from a wacky idea to something that could actually possibly be, and they could actually see a prototype of it. Um, so I think it's uh, that on that thread, you know, continuing that positive message that you can, you can come up with ideas. Not, like, not only can you come up with them, but we can actually prototype them. We can build them and test them and see if we can make them work. And I think that's where the kids get excited. And they don't have the adult filter of, oh, it can't be done, or Zero. things are done a certain Zero. way, right? Zero. Minda Berbeco, tell us about some of the mentors that helped you in your education to get where you are. Mentorship is a big part of education, not just what you learn in the books. Who are some mentors? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There's been so many um, over the years. It's hard to pick out one or two in particular. Um, but I, I think the more so than, than my mentors, it, it's worth talking about who are the mentors in, in the state of California and who are the mentors in this area. And it's really nice to, to look at programs like Cool the Earth, but also ACE, and, um, and even one that we're running at the National Center for Science Education, getting scientists into the classrooms. Because mentors can come in lots of different shapes and sizes. They can be parents. They can be a scientist who comes and works with a class. They can be, um, in the case of ACE, it's... it's 
um, you know, young 20-year-olds who are going up and working with kids um, in their local communities. So they're they come in lots of different shapes and sizes, and, and I think it's worth highlighting that it's really the, the community coming together around climate change that really makes the big impact. Uh, Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, how's it going? Uh, my name is Jason. Uh, and my question is, um, as I understand it, the United Nations reports that uh, if you're looking at like a pie chart of the, the causes of climate change, 40% is uh, due to... Uh, energy, Uh, 40% is due to industrial agriculture, and 20% is miscellaneous, like a variety of reasons. You know, there's a lot of momentum behind energy, transitioning to sustainable energy. But when I come to, you know, events like this, I find that most people are are not aware that uh, industrial agriculture is such a huge part of the problem. So I'm kind of just wondering, why is there such a gap in that education. Thank you. Uh, I should mention that we've done numerous programs at Climate One on that topic, including one very lively recently where we had some vegan activists and some cattle ranchers. It got really (laughs) hot and rowdy in here. Uh, So I encourage you to look at the Climate One podcast for programs. That was about cowspiracy. Uh, We've done a lot of things, but uh, fair point, food, Minda Berbeco, is often overlooked, and it's a big part of the solution. So it's interesting you you say that, um, because I think in the public sphere, we talk a lot about more about energy when we talk about climate change. Um, But interestingly, since the Next Generation Science Standards came up, um, there's actually quite a few other opportunities in science classrooms to talk about climate change. One is the most basic is the carbon cycle. And when you're addressing the carbon cycle, certainly talking about agriculture is one of the ways that teachers um, address climate change. So I think it, it is interesting, sort of in the public sphere, we address energy, we're very focused on it, but in classrooms, it tends to be more nuanced, and there are opportunities to talk about different impacts of climate change from these different components. Alex Whistler, is, is uh, food going to be part of this new Google museum down there? I hope so. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's definitely one of the things we're talking about. I was thinking about your question, um, though, I wonder if it's, this is just a hypothesis, not a theory, um, that uh, uh, maybe it's easier to get our brains around the, uh, the energy challenges, um, you know, or, and, you know, whether it's oil or fossil fuels, et cetera. And whereas food is at such a broad range of issues that, that pile up together, maybe it's not as, as linear or as, as, as simplistic. That's just a guess. But it's something that people can, as Michael Pollan says, you can vote with your fork every day. You can, you can affect every day. That, that's can. both an opportunity and makes it hard. Let's go to our next question. Hello, my name is Drew Lehman. There's a very interesting study done by the American Geosciences Institute about the gap between what's taught in colleges and universities and what's demanded in the workforce. Mm. I just wonder, as environmental professionals, how do you see workforce development in underserved communities so you engage students in the junior high school, high school, and through college so they're adequately prepared for careers in the environmental profession so they can effectuate long-term environmental change. So if you, I, I just tackled this question in a blog I wrote last week, so I'm going to do a shameless promotion. If you go to my <laughs> website, einstellunglabs.com, um, I talked about this very issue, and it also references a num- number of other uh, articles and references. And no one can spell Einstelling, so Google uh, Alex Whistler. We have to end it there. I'd like to thank Minda Berbeco from the National Center for Science Education and Alex Whistler, a consultant and former head of the Chabot Center for Science and Space, and our audience here at the Commonwealth Club. Um, we're going to go to our second segment, but let's give a thanks to Alex and Minda. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. As you're hearing from our guests, there are many ways to inspire kids to go into science. But for some, all they need is a healthy curiosity and a little encouragement. Marine biologist Sylvia Earle came to Climate One last year, and she had some very straightforward advice for a young audience member who wanted to follow in her footsteps. Go get wet. (laughs) I mean, there are many institutions, and of course it's logical that going to a place that is accessible to the sea, or at least to water. <laughs> it helps, but it's not mandatory. But try to get to some place, whether it's within school or on your own time, spend time. 
actually observing the things that you that you're drawn to and you know be good at something choose something that that you really love and and be become as good as you can learn everything you can take advantage of the schools that are there devour what your teachers are trying to stuff into your brain <laughs> that's their job it's your job to absorb it but also on your own follow your heart for me it turned out to be seaweeds hmm. <laughs> but that has led me to look at whales it's led me to kind of go diving all over the world because I have a specialty that people they, they want that that uh, expertise so don't yep. let people say you can't do it because you're a girl <laughs> Dr. Sylvia Earle, National Geographic's Explorer-in-Residence, spoke at Climate One in 2015. And now here's the second half of our program on Learning Green from the Commonwealth Club. We turn now to three outstanding students who are making climate part of their lives. Gianna Amador is an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley, where she's also a research analyst at the Center for Carbon Removal. Ryan Condenza is an Action Fellow at the Alliance for Climate Education, a national organization that brings climate presentations into high schools. He's a high school student as well. Luis Martinez is a student activist. Martinez is currently working on a short film related to climate change and the power of the individual. He is a high school student also. Let's please welcome them to Climate One. So, Luis Martinez, you got involved with an environmental justice group, and then you got an, another group, uh, Nature Bridge. So tell us how you got into this activity around action around environmentalism. So being in San Francisco, you sort of, um, uh, as a native, you see the, the drastic changes that are changing or very rapidly in your, in your hometown. And so you kind of, you kind of push to, to action. And so my sisters were the first to sort of dive into this social activism. And so I followed in their footsteps. And um, it, was, it, was, it was easy for me to do this just because I had to step in with my sisters. And so what we sort of were fighting, what, what the organization was fighting for was for uh, affordable housing and for fighting food deserts in that sense. So Food is a is a very huge topic in in social activism and in environmental like justice, and so this is sort of what tra- helped me transition from uh, fighting for what I believe in to in in sort of a, in my in the city like this to taking action on in the environment. So, and so with Nature Bitch sort of came in from my school. So so teachers know that I was that I was active in my community, and they said that they should channel this energy through the environment. And I thought that was a great idea because I, I had always been an environmental, like, um, activist. I always cared for the environment, like, very deeply. I had deep roots in this. And so Nature Bridge sort of helped me transition my ideas from, from activism into sort of uh, channeling it into our youth. And so uh, Nature Bridge is a, it's a big organization. It's part of the parks department. But it also has a smaller uh, department called the TEAM. And so it's Teen Environmental Educate. Um, teen Environmental Education Mentorship. And so what we do is we take a group of Bay Area kids from all around the Bay Area and we teach them environmental topics through interactive games. And so these, I believe that um, through these games we can actually help uh, instill values and sort of lessons to our youth that they'll grow up and sort of spread because I teach them that their individual actions do have effect and that they're not in vain. And so, and so that's, what I, that's what sort of been the progress from social activism to environmental justice. I'm just sitting up here thinking, gosh, if I was in high school sitting up here in front of talking to a bunch of people, I'd be pretty darn nervous. You guys are doing well. So Luis Martinez, just help us understand how food is an environmental issue, because a lot of people may not connect that, right? And food is, you know, so tell us how food and environment are connected. I would very much like to thank Jason for that question. That was really great. Um, Food is very much underlooked and sort of that um, our diet is a huge component of of the consumption of resources that are uh, that are required to grow everything that we eat, and so specifically, I'm talking about uh, livestock and, and meat. And no, I'm not going to um, condemn those that eat meat, but I want you all to know, like that, meat in general is a very in- carbon-intensive commodity. It's a commodity. It's not required. And so, what we're doing right 800 now, gallons of water in a hamburger. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's, right. So please think about, about that when you're, when you're eating that quarter pounder. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'd like to say, and a, a huge, like, a, a very good example is, is Bakersfield. If you go past Bakersfield, it's like, you, if you all have made the drive down 101, you guys know this, definitely, uh, the smell. And this is because what we're doing is that we're feeding, effectively, we're feeding our food, which is livestock, food. And so we're feeding these, these cows, these, uh, all these livestock, uh, soy, uh, corn, and all of this could be easily um, channeled to feed the huge population that is like hungry right now. We're feeding our food food, and it just does not make sense. Aside from that, livestock require a lot of resources and sort of care, uh, water. They, there's antibiotics that are in a lot of hormones that are like channeled into our livestock, and it just it creates this huge like if, uh, this huge chain of reaction in sort of what we put in and what we get out from our food, and it doesn't, re- it doesn't really make sense. Gianna Amador, you grew up in a farm town mm-hmm. in Turlock. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with what he's saying? I definitely agree that food and agriculture is a huge environmental issue. Um, it's definitely something that, you know, loads of people are working on, that people are working on addressing every day. Um, I think that, you know, agriculture and this kind of way of life, way of life and these patterns of consumption are things that are ingrained culturally and ingrained in a lot of local communities that, you know, it's, it's really hard to just kind of condemn that someone's actions in that way. Um, and that instead, if you take the approach of trying to make agriculture more environmentally friendly, um, trying to find ways that you can use agriculture to sequester carbon in the soils, to decrease the amount of emissions that are coming from agriculture, reduce supply chain carbon emissions, reduce water usage. You know, these are very tangible things that you can do and that you can get people excited about without kind of, you know, forcing someone to take away, you know, what their way of life is or what kind of foods that they eat for certain cultural aspects, things like that. So I think there are ways to empower those communities rather than turning them off from the idea that they should be changing at all. So when you go back to Turlock, you're a student at UC Berkeley, when you go back to Turlock, do you use the C word? Do you talk about climate? or do you, How do you have that conversation? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think that m- increasingly more people are open to talking about climate change. Um, I've seen that change kind of as I've grown up in Turlock and as I've gone to Berkeley. And when I come back, it, it's definitely a recent change. But with you know California's drought situation and decreased levels of snowpack, water availability and the impacts of climate change are something that are very real and very pertinent and very imminent for these farmers. And so it's something that people are more increasingly willing to talk about. And it's really exciting to see those people being engaged. Ryan Cadenza, you took family trips to Tahoe when you were growing up, and then you found the Alliance for Climate Education. Tell us about that journey. So uh, growing up, there's a couple main key parts of my life that made me want to go into environmental work, one of which was up in Tahoe. We uh, took family trips up there. And so obviously you're in Tahoe, you're in a forested area. There's a lot of conservationists up there that I got to meet with and speak to standing on like the sides of the like busier roads with flyers and whatnot. Uh, another big part was I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was like eight. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in the Monterey Bay area. And so the Monterey Bay Aquarium was one of my favorite places. And so back then that was when they were doing their huge push towards sustainability in the oceans and protecting our oceans and whatnot. So I had all these different parts of my life. Um, and I was like, yeah, go climate change, go protect our oceans and whatnot. And so um, when ACE, the Alliance for Climate Education, came to my school in my junior year last year, uh, they gave their presentation on climate change and how it affects all of our different aspects of our life. And I sat there and I was like, wow, there's other people out there like me who care about these issues like I do. And so from there, I was able to make a connection from being a one man standing against a crowd to a network of people who are interested in climate education and climate justice. And you recently went to Sacramento to meet with some legislators. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did that go? And did they really listen to you? Were they they patronizing? Yeah, nice kid. Okay. But, you know, how did they respond to you? I actually got a lot of support from that. Um, We had a legislative advocacy day uh, the other week, actually. And so we were there in... Sacramento advocating for SB 32 and SB 1383, uh, two Senate bills on reducing short-lived climate pollutants and uh, greenhouse gas emissions in California. And so a lot of the representatives we met were actually very supportive. They were very um, thrilled, actually, to have student advocates like me coming out and speaking to them and sharing our voices in the political sphere. 
Gianna, you went to Nicaragua and saw the impacts of climate change firsthand. In particular, there was a, a restaurant or an inn that was actually seeing the, the, the oceans creep up. So tell us about how that raised your awareness about vulnerable people. Yeah. So I worked um, at a water and sanitation uh, distributed energy nonprofit called Blue Energy. Um, they work on a lot of different projects on the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, um, which is a community that really is seeing the impacts of climate change today. Um, and the story you're referring to um, is when we went actually to an island off the coast of Nicaragua called the Corn Islands. And when I was staying in an inn there, um, there was actually water splashing into the cabana that we were staying at. And we were talking to the hotel owners, and they were saying, you know, we used to have so much more land than this, but sea level rise has actually started to take away that from us. And we're really seeing the impacts of sea level rise today. And so the hotel owner and his son every day would take sea ba- or sandbags um, as a makeshift seawall and line them up on the coast as an attempt to stop the erosion from sea level rise. And so it really kind of was an experience that shocked me. And that whole experience of working at Blue Energy really opened my eyes to the fact that this is something that the world's most vulnerable populations are dealing with now. And that's not something that we can ignore. And you know, it's a really big ethical, moral question of whether, you know, we can have the collective action to really address the problem of climate change in time to, you know, stop these things from happening. Those people are most vulnerable and they contributed least to Mm -hmm. the problem. Luis Martinez, you went to China. Tell us about how that impacted your awareness. Okay, so this summer I was able to embark on a journey with 17 other passionate uh, environmentalists to China, which is, as you all may know, like the leader in manufacturing like finished goods, everything that we have for the most part, like finished goods is made from China. And so what you see there is that there's a huge sphere between like the, like how their economy is booming and how that's also affecting and benefiting their citizens. And so for the most part, we hit up, uh, we hit the Southeast Asia. We're in the Southeast for the most part. So the factories there weren't as prevalent as they were inland and more Northern, but there, there definitely was that like that scene where, um, you guys, if you, if you guys have been here in the Bay Area, in San Francisco specifically, you guys do see the, the fog, morning fog, roll in from the ocean into the city and sort of it, it leaves us in this really, in this famous uh, like scene of San Francisco and fog that you all may know. But in Asia, it's the opposite way around. Instead, the fog doesn't necessarily roll in from the ocean. It rolls in from the inland. And so what you see is they're not, it's not a very uh, friendly uh, uh, not really friendly fog. It's it's not fog at all. <laughs> it's it's smog, and so this is very this this is extremely uh, extremely important for the citizens, just because they all like you know it's, it's been it's become so like uh, such a, a, a not a normal thing but a prevalent thing in China that instead of deciding to go out, they have apps that they check the air quality in the morning. So if, if it's if it's PM two point five, which is a, a very small nanoparticle of 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 carbon and so it floats in the air and it gets really lunge it'll get lunged it gets like really stuck into your your lungs and so it causes uh lung cancer and um cardiovascular problems and so these 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 people um or better yet like most of most of china before they go out they check their air quality ratings and see if it's if it's above uh 200 or above 200 that's very that's, that's very bad they don't they just don't go out that day and keep this for a little perspective um california for the most part are p PM 2.5 level is on average a t- on a 10, 10, 20. And they have to deal, and people from Asia have to deal with a PM 2.5 on average of 100 or more. And so this is a very, this is something that's really a, appalling just because they're, what they're living with is not so far off on the, on, and like, it's, not something, it's not something extraterrestrial. It's something that's within Earth. And so these things don't necessarily, like, they do go away after a while, but it, these air currents also travel to us, and they affect us very much. Pollution from China comes to us. We're talking about uh, youth advocates and education in the Bay Area with three Bay Area high school and college students. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One. We're going to go to our live uh, lightning round question and ask them some brief questions. Uh, Ryan Condenza, what's your carbon vice? My carbon vice. My carbon vice would have to be with transportation, especially down in San Jose, where the public transit systems aren't necessarily up to speed as they should be. So a lot of people are reliant on automobiles and cars to get around. Uh, Luis Martinez, your carbon vice. 
up until recently, I was very, I was very, very materialistic, which is something that I'm, I'm slowly giving up. And I, I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of it. Very proud of it. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm there completely yet. I think we're all materialistic in this, to a certain extent. But I was very it's okay. Much, we're, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, still, we're still yes. impressed. Um, uh, I'd be. I, it dealt much with like uh, the f- the flow of money from uh, from businesses that I that I that I was part of, and so this money like it sort of gets to your head like very very fast very fast, and so you're constantly shopping and it's very easy because you don't feel it. You know, online shopping is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Gianna Amador. Carbon capture and sequestration is the only hope. For oil companies to maintain their current business model, we should mention that you work at an <laughs> organization that works on carbon capture. Uh, is that true or false? Let me say false. Uh, also for Gian Amador, billions of taxpayer money has been spent, wasted on studying carbon capture and storage. Yes or no? No. <laughs> uh, Ryan Cadenza, you plan to run for mayor uh, of San Jose in the next 10 years. <laughs> no, that's a definite no. <laughs> Luis Martinez, you plan to run for mayor of uh, San Francisco in the next 10 years. No. <laughs> John, Am- John Amador, you plan to run for public office in Berkeley or somewhere else in your future? No. Ah, so it might be wor- better if you... Some of you did, but let's, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them the thanks. I think they Sorry. did pretty well. Uh, Luis, you're headed off to college. You have the fortunate choice of USC or UCLA, Bruin or Trojan. That's a big deal. Um, so, no. Oh, that's, that's Ryan, me. Uh, <laughs> Ryan's going off to UC, USC or UCLA. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it going to be? I actually made my decision a couple of days ago. I'm going to UCLA, and I'm going to be studying chemical engineering with an emphasis in environmental studies. Yeah. I'll be like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> And you want to work on, what, solar cells, batteries, material sciences? The great thing about chemical engineering is it's one of those things that could be applied to, like, any area. Like, I can go into industrial design. I can go into maybe carbon sequestration. I can go into energy cell production and any of those fields. So I'm just going to see where it takes me. And Luis, you were going to look at colleges recently. Was it San Luis Obispo? Yes. I was very much, I was visiting um, Cal Poly Slow and Santa Barbara and UC Santa Barbara, but I've made my choice for Santa Barbara despite the, the, the very technical aspect of Slow. Uh, I think that I could grow more as an, I could grow more with a bigger UC school system at, at a UC. And so what I was planning to go in for was city and regional planning along with environmental studies. And so what I see in this is that as, uh, as the world is currently like still developing and it's, we're, we're still going on that path, uh, we could sort of, uh, develop our cities, which is where most of people are sort of like funneling into and develop into more sustainable matters. So having more like green areas, perhaps like make the most out of our, our space, which is like rooftops. So this is sort of like my vision and sort of city and regional planning. Congratulations to both of you. Gianna Amador, you came into Cal pre-med, not as an environmental person. I'd like to tell us about that transition and also what you've encountered as a woman in sort of engineering and some of the biology classes there. Yeah. Um, so I, I did go into Cal as pre-med, um, but I definitely was always interested in the environment. Um, like we discussed before, um, I come from a farming town in a place where people are very dependent on their environment. And so those issues were always something that I was very interested in. Um, and so coming to Cal, I think Cal has this really great sustainability community that really pushes you um, kind of and drives you to do more. Um, I got thrown into that a little bit. Um, and I really got to see the great things that people are working on. You know, there are people who are working on um, improving water use and conservation on campus. There are people who tried to get solar panels on Cal's campus, which actually happened this year, which was great, um, but are also working on research projects, you know, that are happening around the world, that are happening in the Bay Area. And it's real research that is making an impact in informing policy. And that was, I think, really um, engaging and exciting to see. And so it kind of just drew me in. I'd like to ask you uh, about, starting with Ryan Cadenza, about your thoughts about your parents' generation. This climate change conversation is so often about future generations. John Kerry signed the climate deal with his granddaughter uh, on his lap, cute two-year-old girl. Uh, What do you think about what's being handed down by gray-haired guys like me in the previous generation? So it's a mix of two different sides. I've found a lot of strong mentors within the older generations. Like a lot of the people who I look up to and who I aspire to be come from these generations, especially with climate advocacy. 
But on the flip side, I find a lot of the older generation to be like less um, inclined to take action against climate change, while my generation is more, um, we were raised with the idea that climate change is a thing and climate change is happening. So we go forth like into the occupational world with the mindset that our actions have an influence on not only ourselves, but also the future generations. Gianna Amador, did my generation fail yours? I don't think you failed us. Um, I think for the older generations, it's a question of, you know, the question was whether climate change is a thing. And that's not really a question for the generation today. Um, I think it also has a lot to do with framing. And we talked about that in the previous panel. Um, But there's kind of this change in framing for climate change that's happened. Before, it's a lot of kind of that impending doom talk. And no one really responds to that in a positive way. And I think, you know, now the way that climate change education is being done is, you know, this very empowering way. It's what can we do in our personal actions? You know, what kind of careers can you have that can make an impact? Even if you're not interested in the environment specifically, if you're interested in public relations, how can you use public relations to impact you know, climate and the environment. And so it's this really kind of empowering model that I think is more effective and didn't really get to be used on kind of the older generations. We're just figuring that out now. Luis Martinez, is the apathy or denial an issue for people, your peers? Definitely. Um, especially, in, or not especially, but for the high school scene, it's where it's all like, um, what's like prom and stuff like that, really, really <laughs> minuscule things that don't really matter for the most part. Like, they do matter to a certain extent, but still, like, they're not really in relation to, like, the real world. Um, they have, like, high schoolers keep up this image of, like, what's cool. And so then uh, the environment is, like, for the most part, is not that, like, cool. Like, and, so, uh, and so you're going to have to, like, have to let them know that high school will be over four years of your life, but you're going to be dealing with the real world for the rest of your life. So it's better to, like, equip yourself and adapt to this, to the real world. And what's really happening is that climate change is going to not just affect a few, it's going to affect all of us. And so Climate change will be the, the will, will bring us all like, together. This may sound really idealistic, but it will because it, economically, politically, socially, these are all problems that are intertwined. And then we could come up with a solution. It'll probably solve. It'll solve a lot of them. Those three. Luis Martinez is a high school student. We're talking with Cal student uh, uh, Gianna Amador and also another high school student Ryan Condenza here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts on iTunes and at climateone.org. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. I'm Nisa Fury, and I'm the parent of a high school student and a middle school student. And um, I'm actually interested in hearing because as my daughter just got into high school and we're looking at curriculum and she's very interested in environmental issues, I am finding, and I'm curious to hear what your feedback is, that as you're looking, especially if you're kind of a um, hardworking student and academically minded, the environmental sciences, I'm getting the sense, are looked at as soft sciences for kids who are not good at science. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you experience this in your high schools, but there seems to be this unwritten rule. Like if you're a serious science student, you've got to focus more on chemistry and AP this and AP that. And I feel like this whole area of science is an area we want to be encouraging all students to be taking seriously, and that actually, as you're saying, you're combining chemistry and environmental science, seems to be a really exciting place to be going. So I just wanted to know if you could comment on that a little. Thank you. Brian Cadenza, do, do real men take environmental <laughs> science? Um, for the most part, I, I see where you're coming from. A lot of people see environmental science as like a step back. But in my perspective, environmental science is a way of connecting all the other areas of sciences. Like, I can apply chemistry, I can abl- apply biology, and I can apply all of the... Uh, social sciences and humanities as well, as well within the context of environmental sciences. So I, I agree with you, yes. I would really like to see a push towards um, embracing environmental sciences as like this stronghold where we can connect all different areas of study. Gianna Amador, how about at, at Cal? Is there a sense that, you know, the, that the, the real top people do hardcore engineering and then, you know... Women study flowers? Yeah, I mean, at least in my personal experience, I think that that mentality leaves a little bit once you do go to college. Um, When you're in high school, it it largely depends upon, you know, what are the strong programs, what are the strong teachers. Um, And I encourage everyone to kind of take what interests them because that's really where you're going to get the most return. But I think once you go to college, you know, everyone's at such a high level and everyone is doing exactly what interests them, um, you know, and has the chance to explore. And like Ryan said, you really kind of get that multidisciplinary aspect when you study the environmental sciences. So I definitely think that 
it's not really seen as a, a lower or inferior science at the college level. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, um, I'm Mika Smith. I'm at a high school for environmental leadership in Marin. And I'm in a group of around six students, and we're looking at the environmental justice in affordable housing in low-income regions. We've identified a bunch of um, food deserts and transportation deserts in Marin City. And I was wondering if you have any tips or anything you've researched within what you've done to help us look more and dive deeper into the problem in that community. Luis Martinez? Okay, and so uh, this is sort of integrating for schools integrating uh, the school garden system, I think that'd be really efficient. But not only that, uh, implementing that within, like, if you, with you and your group, if you, like, to really, like, go out into the streets and demand that, that, your, that your municipal government, like, give you these, like, grants, I guess, for, like, land grants to build community gardens. Community gardens, I think, are a great idea to, like, get you guys started in food deserts to eliminate those just because they provide a cheap access to food. They can create community and a green space. Now, I'm, I'm sure Marin is, does not lack that, but green space and community gardens and food des- and accessibility to food will provide all the essential, like, uh, aspects to, to eliminate food, wa- food deserts. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, uh, my name is Khalil Laltu, and I'm in high school at the College Preparatory School in Oakland. Um, So Louise and the other people on the earlier panel talked a lot about the importance of education, the the importance of educating very young children, like elementary school level. Uh, But I'm in high school, and you guys are high school and college students. uh, And I just want to know your opinions, not just on educating, but like galvanizing your peers into action and how you approach that because I know it's a completely different approach than if you were to teach younger children. We'd like to tackle that one. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a a kind of a mentality of advocacy at Cal, um, which we're really fortunate to have because, you know, you're able to bring a lot of excited people into one space. Um, But I really think that, you know, effective communication is kind of at the base of all of this. When you show that you're passionate about an issue and you show people, you know, the hard science behind it, but also kind of the social economic um, impacts that go along with kind of the hard science. I think you really get a holistic approach to a problem and that makes people inspired because it's not just climate change is something that's going to be happening to us, but also, you know, here are the reasons why you should really care and here's how we can empower ourselves to act. So it's looking at that big picture view that I think really, you know, brings people together and keeps them there. Brian Condensa, how do you get get um, people, your peers, excited and engaged? Okay, so one of the big things we work on at ACE is our personal narratives. It's our personal story of how climate change affects us in our communities. And so by giving a, um, a, like, a direct story, a direct connection to environmental, change, or environmental degradation and uh, climate change as a whole, we can make these issues personal. And so if uh, that's a huge motivation for like any group of people, especially for the younger generations who are more connected than ever because of social media and any other platform. Like we are working on a, uh, one of our biggest campaigns is the Get Loud Challenge, um, which connects students across the nation, all of us interested in climate change. And so a lot of the works that I've done, like at the Capitol, um, those have been shared through that social media platform. And hopefully we can get more people interested in and engaged with climate issues. Develop a personal story. Great advice. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. Um, hi, my name is Paloma Siegel, and I'm a student like Mika at the same school for environmental leadership in Marin. Um, and yesterday, a group of my peers and I organized an Earth Day event during lunch um, with outside organizations and other student organizations about educating our school um, population about climate change. And the turnout was low because it was raining. <laughs> um, and after lunch, one of my student friends in another class turned to me and he said, um, you know, nobody cares about the earth. And I was like, well, I do. And he was like, yeah, you're the only one. And then I was, I was wondering, how do you guys respond to those sort of things on your daily, you know, through daily classes when the rest of the school doesn't appear except for the other students that you rallied for the event? How do you respond to those sort of things? We'd like to take that. That's a tough one. I can Brian, go Brian for can it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that is an issue, especially in... Uh, like my generation where there is such a big push to get ahead and to be the best because like, especially (laughs) during college app season, everyone's focused on how our actions are going to put us in college, but put us in a better position in the future. And so in that, a lot of the environmental work gets like left in the back of our minds. 
Uh, but so what I do is I find my own community. Like I found my own networks like within my school and outside. And from there, I'm able to pull from all these different places and find the support that I need to continue the work that I'm doing. Sometimes it can feel lonely. Thank you for the question. Thanks for the answer. We have to end it there. I've interviewed a lot of leaders on this stage, and these three give me especially a lot of hope, and I'm really excited about the careers and rows ahead of you, and thank you for your coming here today to Climate One. Luis Martinez, high school student, Gianna, Gianna Amador, student at Cal, and Ryan Condenza, another high school student. Let's thank them for this. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.